Welcome to Ms. Interpreted, her podcast of public relations and strategic communications, demystified by Kelly Fletcher and Fletcher Marketing PR. You really have to make that your central message. Don't look for divisions in how you disagree with people. Look for the the issues that can unify us. When I fly, I don't care if the guy next to me is on the left or the right. We've got a mission to do. Let's come together and get it done. Look for ways to unify us. Don't think of who's right. You always look for what is right. And that's what should guide you. You shouldn't worry about yourself being the person that's bringing the right message or I'm always gonna be on the right side. You hope and pray you're gonna be on the correct side, but you are the person who's helping to unify and look for what's right, not who's right at this point. And those politicians who do that are gonna rise above. And they're gonna be the ones that we recognize as saying, They didn't stand for their side. They stood for America. Welcome, listeners, to the Misinterpreted Podcast. I'm Kelly Fletcher, CEO of Fletcher Marketing PR, and I'm here with my colleague, Fletcher Senior Strategist, Mary Beth West. Hey, Kelly, how are you doing? (laughs) Long time no see. (laughs) Yeah, I know, hanging in there. (laughs) (laughs) Our topic today is PR and crisis at mock speed, and our guest is an expert at both, among other things. Yeah, what was Liam Neeson's line in that movie, Taken? Our guest today has a very particular set of skills. (laughs) (laughs) She does. (laughs) Our nation is a whole lot safer, thanks to our guest and to all of our military service women and men. And today that guest is Ashley Niklos, a recent candidate for Congress from East Tennessee, who I had the privilege of meeting a few years ago during her campaign. And I must say, I was was not completely impressed from the start. (laughs) Wait, 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 wait. (laughs) Okay, so it took an hour. (laughs) Maybe two. I was invited to an event where she was speaking, and I remember I got there and her her literature was there, and it was it was a lot more conservative than I normally am. That's why Mary mm-hmm. Beth and I make such a good team because we we don't always fall along the same. I'm lines. the yin to her yang. Yes, exactly. I'm right, and she's wrong. Um, <laughs> no, but, I'm on the right. You're on the left. <laughs> so I'm always right. There you go. I'm not really that far left. I'm I'm a yeah, moderate. Yeah. But, um, well, as am I. So, but uh, I was just drilling. Ashley, because nobody else was asking any questions. So mm-hmm. I just started asking her a million questions and and I liked her answers. Yeah. And I like and I thought that she had answers to back everything up that I'd never thought of before. And then when I found out she was a North Carolina girl and an Appalachian State grad, I was like, okay. Yeah, that sealed it. Uh, that sealed it. <laughs> yeah. She's yeah. my home girl. So. Well, <laughs> while being a wife and a mother of four, Ashley serves as a lieutenant colonel and KC-135 aircraft commander in the Tennessee Air National Guard. So she's got that going for her. She was deployed in the Middle East as recently as last fall. And so it's really impressive all of the different credentials she brings to today's conversation and, and really to everything that she's done. She was running for Congress in summer of 2018, but her, her campaign was a bit stymied by the fact that she was actually deployed for another Middle East refueling mission within weeks of having filed as a candidate. So her deployment at that time meant that she was legally barred during that time from campaigning. But nonetheless, she was endorsed 
As the GOP preferred nominee by the Knoxville News Sentinel, she worked tirelessly on her campaign during that time that she was able to do so. And part of working tirelessly was an incredible run in the national media. She gained coverage in profile stories in the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, and numerous other national media. Yeah, I mean, that was the first time I had heard of her campaign. I was having friends in New Jersey and D.C. I had one friend up in Vermont who started emailing me because they had read that coverage and seen the coverage about her case. And they were saying, do you know this woman? She sounds just so outstanding. And I want to share with you a clip of Ashley being interviewed by Dana Perino on Fox News the day before the 2018 primary. Now, Niklos is on a new mission. Challenge the career politicians. Rebuild our military. Grow our economy. That was an ad recently released in support of Lieutenant Colonel Ashley Niklos. The Republican is part of a crowded field running in a primary tomorrow, hoping to win the open seat in the 2nd District. And I'm joined now by Lieutenant Colonel Ashley Nicholas. Thanks for being here with us today. You're running in a seat that has been held by the Duncan family for many, many decades. Yes, ma'am. 54 years. And what did you, why did you decide to run? I, I, I was, you, brought, you were brought to my attention by this group. It's called With Honor. And David Ignatius, mm-hmm. who's a columnist for The Washington Post, wrote this about With Honor today. The coalescence of young veterans of Iraq and, Af- and Afghanistan may be the most positive trend on the political horizon. These young men and women have been through the nightmare of combat in the most challenging environments. They know what it means to serve the country beyond flag-waving and sloganeering. Um, Did they recruit you to run for this seat or how did they find you? Uh, No, ma'am. I just got tired of how broken Washington is. You know, my view from 18,000 feet over Syria, Iraq and Afghanistan is much different than the view from Washington. And after multiple deployments after the past two decades, I thought it was time to bring a new voice and a voice of experience to Congress. Great job on that interview there. But despite that, as the only woman running in a seven-way Republican field for the nomination, she came in third behind two longtime politicians who had many years of name awareness really already entrenched in the congressional district here. And we'll have to say the more I got to know Ashley because we became friends throughout. Well, we're still friends. (laughs) I didn't dump her after she lost. (laughs) No, I didn't dump her after she lost. Yeah. I'm waiting for her to run for something else again so I can help her, hopefully help contribute. But she's so accomplished. I mean, she's a mom of four and recently just completed her master's degree in something like military warfare. The operational art of war with a concentration in Joint force integration. Hello. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yes. That's impressive. Very impressive. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm just so excited to have you. Welcome to Misinterpreted. Well, thank you. It's so great being here. We love having you here. This has been kind of a long time coming. We've been really <laughs> excited about the prospect of having you on. So thank you. Yes, absolutely. Ashley, you know, I know about your story and your career pathway and how you got to where you are, but please share with our listeners a little bit about your journey. Well, gosh, I don't even know how I got here. Honestly, I have, there's one thing you really need to know about me. I really try to live my life by faith, family, and service. And if I keep those in order, speak from the heart, Mm -hmm. and uh, do what I'm called to do, then, you know, it really has always guided my, my way. And there is absolutely nothing special about me. I am a girl who followed her dream and was just 
stubborn enough not to say no or to be kept down. My mother always said I was her stubborn child, (laughs) and it has very much served me well because perseverance is really the word I I keep in my mind. When I'm pushed down, I always try to persevere and come back because good things come to those who work hard. And if life is easy, then it is never treasured as much. Mm -hmm. And we certainly know that really well right now with what's going on in our world. Would you share a little bit about why you decided to become a pilot and your journey? And I love the story about your grandfather. Yeah. Oh, yes. So that is my mother's father. His name was Ted Holmes, Theodore Breckenridge Holmes. He was a B-17 pilot out of North Africa, staging out of Libya at the time early in the war. And I've read letters from him where he was on mission number 28, and He was training a brand new co-pilot who he had to teach how to take off, do a bombing mission, and land, all while being shot at over Italy while his buddies were being shot out of the sky beside him. And, you know, he said, I apologize for my trembling hand. Sometimes the pressure gets a bit overwhelming. But he was so passionate about, please tell everyone at home that we are doing what we need to do. This is a mission that the world needs to take on because there is evil in this world that we are fighting against. And it's very interesting hearing his words from those letters. He came home, I believe he had survivor's guilt, honestly, from reading his letters. And he decided to sign up and fly B-29s in the Pacific. And he was sent to Saipan as a B-29 aircraft commander. He arrived there in November, if my timeline is correct, of 1944. And he flew his last mission in 1945, March of 1945. And he actually was sent on a mission with his crew to do weather reconnaissance and also a bombing raid. And halfway through the mission, they realized they weren't gonna have enough fuel to get back if they continued with their mission. However, the weather reporting was extremely vital for the follow-on mission, which was Operation Meeting House, which was the first major firebombing of Tokyo that was gonna be going that evening after they landed. So they elected to continue. And on their way home, they ran out of fuel and he had to ditch it into the Pacific. He died. However, uh, four other people survived from his crew. And so that's how I was able to find online, actually, the final mission and their thought process. And, you know, he so believed in what he did that he sacrificed everything for it. And my mother was actually born two months after his death. So in that moment where I read that story, it was actually on a temporary duty assignment. And, uh, It really brought me full circle because what I do as an air refueling tanker pilot is I make sure those men and women get home to their children, to their families, that they are able to save the troops on the ground and make sure those troops get home. And so I'm not the fighter pilot. And, you know, I'm just more in the backside of things, but we always have a constant mission over the troops on the ground and the fighters in the air to make sure that they get home safely. And to me, that's worth more than any type of recognition or glory in, in being another type of like fighter pilot or anything. Everybody has their mission that is so vital and important in our military, and none of it can be 
de-emphasized because all these moving parts make things happen. Yeah. Mary Beth's crying. I'm going to have to take a break. So <laughs> I, um, I've already heard the story, so I already cried. <laughs> it yeah. kind of chokes me up every time, though, but my mom, as a result of that, has always been so supportive of my career. She's yeah. the one who comes and lives with my husband and my children and takes care of them on my numerous deployments. You know, she is always there in the backbone and she has a heart for service and she serves just as much alongside as I do, just as my children do, just as my husband does. You know, when that military member walks out the door, the whole family serves. And uh, mm-hmm. so, but my dad was also a pilot and he served in the Air National Guard as a maintenance officer here in Tennessee but then became a commercial airline pilot. So I kind of got it from both sides. Right. And uh, then I was so blessed to meet my husband, who was a military member at the time. So he understood my calling, and he's always been supportive. And it was funny, because I was used to being the one that was deployed and walking out the door. But when he deployed to Iraq, it was extremely hard for me, because I was like, no, 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 wait, I'm the one who goes. And I couldn't, I felt like I couldn't protect him over there. And I knew what he was stepping into. And so it was very hard for me when he left. And that's when I saw the spouse side of supporting a military member. Yeah. And he's a surgeon, yes? He is. He's a trauma surgeon at the University of Tennessee and Mm -hmm. also does critical care. So he's really keeping an eye on this COVID crisis because he's the one who runs vents and takes care of those critical patients. I mean, what an extraordinary couple you both are in terms (laughs) of what you're doing, not only just in service to our country, but certainly in service to our community. And it's a very powerful now thing. you now you know why I love uh, yes. you so much and thank you for your yes. service and your it's a my privilege hero. to serve. I mean, yeah. I am so privileged to serve our nation and something that I completely believe in and so blessed to live here in East Tennessee because I can't tell you of a time where I don't step out off the base into the public where, you know, I have to run to the grocery store to get dinner for the kids on the way home or something. Every time somebody says, Thank you for your service. And I always answer, it's my privilege because it truly is. So, What are some of the stereotypes that you encountered as you were trying to pursue this career path? Obviously, you were inspired Mm -hmm. by a very personal family connection to a service-driven mentality overall, Mm -hmm. but just to this nation and to, and it struck me just now when you said that, um, you know, you're your grandfather had that recognition that there is evil in this world. I do think that a lot of people don't get that. No, they, they do don't. not get that. So just the fact that I mean, all these motivational factors that are inherent to your DNA and to why you have done what you've done and why you've chosen the path that you've chosen. I'm just curious if there were some, and I'm sure that there were some roadblocks along the way, or at least some kind of dismissive attitudes relative to what your focus and your ambition was. So Mm -hmm. can you tell us a little bit about that? Because I think that, you know, young women and, and girls too, as they're coming along and they may feel a similar sense of motivation, it would help them to hear your story so they can feel like, okay, this is possible if I will just 
put those stereotypes or those issues to the wayside and just kind of focus on what I want to do. Well, things have changed a little bit. I can't say they've completely turned around, but still only 4.4% of the pilots in the commercial world are females in the United yeah. States today. The last statistic I read was only 1.5% of the military force pilots are women. So, you know, at least the numbers are getting up there, but not in any comparative to what men are. Uh, so when I was growing up, people would say, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I said, oh, I'm going to work for the airlines because that's what I saw from my dad's side. Right. Yeah. And they would always say, oh, you want to be a flight attendant? I said, no, I don't want to be a flight attendant, although I think, you know, that's a great job. Oh, you want to be a ticket agent? No. I'm going to, and I said, no, you know, they do a great job yeah, too, yeah, but yeah. they're like, oh, well, you don't want to have to throw bags, do you? And I said, no, I'm going to be a pilot. Actually, women don't do that. And I'd say, well, this woman does. <laughs> you know, I don't know what you're talking about. Because my mom and dad didn't ever raise me to know limitations. Right. Yeah. You know, yeah. and that was an amazing part of them. They always empowered me. And, you know, the first person who ever did not say that to me was my husband. I met him, and uh, he asked, you know, what do you do? I say, oh, I work for the airlines. He said, oh, really? Are you a pilot? And Ring-a-ding-ding. I, I looked at him, and I told him, I said, I love you. So I actually <laughs> told him, test. I told him I loved him in the first 15 minutes of meeting him. Now, he says, he would say the first eight minutes. But, but, but he's counting. Yeah. But, you know, my whole life, I just decided this is what I'm going to do. Yeah. Yeah. And so I made it happen. Sometimes it was like being ahead against a brick wall, honestly. Uh, I wasn't hired the first interview out here in Knoxville. They said they didn't think I would be able to handle the military way of training. And so I said, okay. Well, I actually went up to New York and was hired at a National Guard unit in New York flying the same aircraft. And uh, they... They were funny. It was, hey, we want you to come and interview. And this was way back then, yeah, yeah, okay? Yeah. And uh, they said, uh, we want you to come and interview because we need a quota. And I said, okay, you'd be a quota. Are you okay with that? And I said, I'm okay with it because I'll prove my way. And they say, well, even though we need a quota, we're not going to hire some fat, ugly chick. And no I way. Said, Are you kidding me? Okay, um, well, you know, at the time I was younger, I was like, I was six, and I, I feel like I'm fairly average. And I said, okay, well, I think I'm okay with that. And I went through three layers of interviews with leadership, and they all said the same thing. And finally— That? They said that? They all, I said at the very last one, I said, do you guys practice this? Because you have all said the exact same thing. I'd be a quota— but you're not going to hire some fat, ugly chick. And uh, being a fat kid when I was little, you know, I was very sensitive to that. <laughs> um, but that's also helped make me who I am, honestly. I am absolutely flabbergasted. I, you were, I mean, it. and really, Ashley, this couldn't have been that long ago. You're not, well, uh, I mean, you're pretty young. 1998. Yeah. 1998. It was funny. But, you know, I just always have had that personality of, <laughs> okay, whatever, I'll prove my way. And so I just didn't, I didn't let it keep me down. And I thought, well, if this is my foot in the door, I will prove my way every step yeah. after it. And so, you know, you, you enter into the field in that it, it, it's either going to make or break you. Right. And so, 
they said, well, if you go to the bar tonight and drink and uh, don't make an ass to yourself, then we'll hire you in the morning. So I said, okay. Well, <laughs> that's a hard job to they, go to the bar. <laughs> it may be hard for them, but uh, it wasn't hard for her. Needless to say, they hired me the next morning. That unit actually got bracked, so they were cut under one of the defense department's downsizing. So, But they were, honestly, they were great guys. They were so much fun. But then... Knoxville called and asked, uh, hey, we'd like you to come interviewing again. I said, well, I've already been hired up in Niagara, New York for a pilot slot up there. And that's when Knoxville asked me to, to come here. And this was my home and this is where my, all my family was. And so this is where I truly wanted to be. So I felt so blessed. And honestly, those guys up there, it's it's just a, it's a community. And that was the pilot community at the time. They don't want to take someone in who men, male or female, they're, they're going to have to cater to. You're there to do a job. You're there at sometimes to make extremely hard choices and to basically help enact violence on the enemy. Uh, they don't need to have someone who needs to be pandered to in some yeah, special or way. Or all, yeah, right. exactly all that. You know, when I deploy, I'm one of the guys. Yeah. And they think of me as their sister. And, you know, just like siblings, we we fight sometimes over mm-hmm. stupid stuff. I mean, when you're together for that long yeah. in that close of an environment <laughs> for that amount of time. But I still consider them all my brothers. And they are amazing individuals. Yeah. I'm sure they are. Yeah. I'm sure they are. But that's, that was just an interesting trial by fire right. in, in a lot of ways <laughs> for you just to kind of right. get through that entry point and just hopeful that at this point it's not like that anymore. No, I mean, I but would hope. still, I'm, I'm the only female pilot in our squadron. Mm-hmm. I was the first female that they had to deal with to have children. You know, I would come back to work and breastfeed. Mm -hmm. You know, I had to go pump milk. When Mm -hmm. I was deployed to Afghanistan after my third child was born, I would have to, during missions, because our missions are sometimes uh, 12 hours long, I would have to, during non-critical phases of flight, go into the back, sit on top of the toilet that we have on the airplane, and pump milk. Yeah. So, I don't know how many gallons of milk I actually pumped. <laughs> Did you ship it back over? Home? No, I didn't because but you just kind of have to keep it going. I was trying to keep it going, <laughs> yeah, right? I was like, yeah. And uh, so you know, I'm there, twenty six thousand feet over Afghanistan, flying a combat <laughs> mission, and I'm sitting on the crapper pumping milk. <laughs> oh my so. gosh! <laughs> you can't make that up. So, uh, so if someone asks you if you have multitasking skills, you yes, can definitely say yes. <laughs> and of course, the guys would make fun of me when I'd come out. They're like, "Hey, I'm eating some cookies. You got any milk?" <laughs> or if we had turbulence, they're like, "Oh, milkshakes tonight." You know, so, you know, they were a hoot. So they even actually made a cowbell for me that, I mean, a no-joke cowbell that they put on my my, uh, helmet bag. And, yeah, I had to carry that cowbell with me on my helmet bag on every sortie. My breast pump probably has a combat medal uh, of itself. It's been on so many. Yeah. And you you have four children. You have four children. I've actually birthed five children. Our third child was a preterm birth, but he was such a blessing in our lives. Uh, I mean, honestly, when people say, I'm so sorry for your loss, you know, I gained so much from Gabriel. Our family gained so much from Gabriel. Our relationship as a, a wife and husband grew so exponentially during that time. It's those 
uh, we call them, you know, in the military world, uh, aviators, critical phases of flight. That was a very critical phase of our marriage where we really saw who we were and it really solidified the fact that we won't always be there for one another. And uh, so, you know, marriage is so hard at times and it's something you have to fight for, just like your career, just like for your family. But going through times like that are what make it worth fighting for. But uh, yeah, so we have five children and uh, so blessed 16 through nine years old. Wow. And I love that you named him Gabriel. Oh, yeah. It's perfect. We didn't, we never named our children until they were born. And we never knew if they were a boy or a girl until they were born. So when I was in labor with Gabriel, uh, we we were trying to think of male and female names. And so we just thought, you know, God is with us through this whole thing. And, you know, Angel Gabriel just came as, as a, you know, idea. And then it just really fit the fit the moment. Wow. Yeah, so. so there's one thing I've never asked you, and that is, have you ever had a close call or a brush with serious danger in oh. your career? Uh, or yeah. that one you want to talk about? Every landing I do. No. <laughs> every landing is a controlled crash into the terra firma uh, for every pilot. But, uh, <laughs> we, you know, it's just something we really try not to to think about. Um, well, we do. Okay. Every time we line up on the runway as a pilot, you think, okay, I'm going to push up the throttles. At this point, when I lose an engine, this is how I'm going to react. If I get it to this uh, airspeed and altitude, this is how I'm going to react when I lose an engine. So you're always thinking bad things are going to happen, but you hope for the best. As far as combat goes, you know, you really just try to put it in a box and fly the mission. There have been times I flew Operation Unified Protector when we liberated Libya because that's worked out so well. And... It was really a extremely high threat environment. Yeah. Not only from the enemy that was on the ground in Libya, but also the the threat of the saturation of the airspace just off the coast of Libya was also uh, extremely hard to navigate because the traffic was so heavy, you constantly had to be aware of where the other aircraft were. And we're we're refueling coalition fighters, and uh, some of those guys, bless their hearts, uh, were not as highly trained. Uh, we're so spoiled by our American counterparts, also like the French and the English. They they fly incredible aircraft. Well, we were having some countries that were coming up, and uh, yeah, you were like, oh, please get away from me. I call them uh, cuddlers because usually when we have fighters on our wingtip, they stay a certain distance, right? Well, these guys would come up and I would look out and they would be over our wings. I mean, right over our wings. And I was like, oh my gosh, those guys are cuddling today. And you're like, get back. Get back. I am not a spooner. Get back. So, <laughs> and then there, you can hear the boom operator in the back and their octave kind of goes up and down depending on how stable the fighter is in the back. So you could hear the voice get a little tense sometimes and you're like, thank goodness I can't see it up here. But so, you know, just recently in October, I was deployed to Afghanistan. When you think about it, when you first get there, I was eating dinner the first night and you hear a uh, rocket fire 
and it was just outside the dining facility. And you just kind of stop and jump and look at your crew members, and then you look around, and they look at you like, oh, you're new. <laughs> you reacted. You just flinched. Yeah. And uh, when I would go to bed at night, you can hear the CRAN system that goes off to deflect any incoming mortars or anything. And, and so you wake up and you think, oh my gosh, do I need to jump under my bed? That's not going to save me. You know, and then you just get kind of used to the environment and you sleep and you're eating and you don't flinch when you hear the outgoing because you're there to do a job and, you know, God's got a plan. He could hit me on the road driving to the airport one day in a car. You know, you're just, at least I'm serving and doing what I need to do. Mm -hmm. So it's not for naught. What do Americans fail to get? What do they often misjudge or just fail to understand about our men and women in uniform? You know, something I thought was interesting— and when people don't know that I'm in the military mm-hmm. and the conversation comes up, I have found that many people think that it is the military is made up by a lot of the underprivileged community, huh, um, yeah. the okay. uneducated, those who haven't gone to college, those who are expendable, mm-hmm. and some attitudes of the upper middle and upper class are not my child. My child doesn't have to do something like that. Right. That's for those that are lower. And that it's, is it's, just... It's a sick... That's kind of a sick mentality. That's more than a sick mentality. It is, but it's it's an attitude that is pervasive. And when I say, oh, really? So I'm in the military and I have two degrees from my undergraduate degree and, you know, just received my master's. My husband is a very accomplished surgeon and he served 22 years. It's not just those that have nots. Mm-hmm. It is those who have the desire to serve something bigger than themselves and who believe in this incredible experiment of democracy And, I mean, we are so privileged to be a part of this incredible nation, and people just take it for granted. And so everyone serves in the military from the top to the bottom. Look at Senator Tom Cotton. I mean, he was an individual who, he was definitely not without the means, but he stepped up after 9-11 and said, I want to serve. Yeah. I mean, it's incredible to meet some of the people that have served in the military. So my younger brother is an army ranger and well, and he got into, I don't know what you call it, green brace, green brace school or trial. Yeah. He didn't make it through that. He got invited back and then he sprained his knee. But he, from the time he was little, we were like, what's going on with Harrison? Like he wants to be in the military. He would save his money and collect military uniforms and read books. And he was a 4.0 student in high school. I mean, he was a 4.0 student in college. He could have done anything. And he dedicated his whole entire life. This is what he wants to do. He wants to be on the front lines. He's got, I think, 250 men under his command now in Manhattan, Kansas. Yeah. Uh, And so... Man, Army Rangers, and that's another misconception. People don't realize that how educated... Individual are yes. individuals are. Yeah. I just read uh, General James Mattis's book, yeah. and I mean that dude is incredibly intelligent. General Petraeus, 
I was reading an article last night of a, a Green Beret doing uh, tribal insertion techniques into Afghanistan. And his understanding of the battle space, the history of Afghanistan, the tribal makeup in Afghanistan. I mean, I just sat there and thought, man, this is an incredibly intelligent individual that is we are utilizing in our military and is serving with all of his heart. So education and socioeconomic class of those who yeah. people generally believe are in the military. Well, you know, this podcast is called Misinterpreted for a reason because we like to dispel myths or discuss myths, particularly in communications and marketing and public relations. But when it comes to women in the military, according to Pew Research in 2017, women represented 16% of the overall military active duty force. And that was up from 9% in 1980. But in 1970, it was only 1%. Mm -hmm. um, here's an even more interesting statistic. Nearly one in five commissioned officers in the U.S. military women, back to your point about education. So what can the U.S. military stand to gain by more women being recruited to the ranks? Well, we bring in a different perspective, mm -hmm. uh, of course, and having to balance family and career is huge for women. And it's very, very hard. I mean, I, and just in my squadron, when trips get put on the board or deployments are put on the board, the guys are like, oh, I'm going to take that trip or I'm going to go on that deployment. And then they call their wives and say, hey, babe, I'm going on this trip. Okay, thanks. Well, before I can take a trip, I've got to make probably five different calls. Who's going to take care of the kids? Who can cover meals? Who can, what's my husband's schedule? You know, I have all of these different calls I have to make before I can do it. So logistically, it's extremely difficult. But I think if the military could make it where, it, that's a very fine line for me because I don't want women to get special treatment in the military. I think women are part of the total force and they need to be uh, realized that. They don't deserve special treatment. Mm -hmm. They don't deserve to have, oh, you don't have to shave your head or whatever, you know, whatever it is. If you're gonna go into that specific job, you've gotta be able to stand the line just like the guys do. But say you have a baby, for instance, and you have to breastfeed. We need to have certain times where women are allowed to have that part of their lives in addition to be a part of the total force. Mm -hmm. Where that line is, I don't know, because you come into questions of, you know, well, this woman who's going to have children, we can't use her while she's pregnant or right after pregnancy. We can't use her for deployment. So it's a very, very hard struggle because you're trying to fill those numbers to defend the nation and you're also trying to accommodate women. And so part of me is like, no accommodation. You're there to draw, to serve the line. The other part of me is like, you know, there has to be at least some part that is a give, but I don't want that special treatment label put on yeah. us. Yeah. And it just takes a certain person to be able to step out there into outside. It's, it's uncomfortable, and you have to get used to being uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And you have to have that kind of mindset to, to persevere and step out and be uncomfortable to serve in the military because it's not for everybody. Yeah. It's not for every man. It's not for every yeah. woman. Yeah. And no matter what, you're going to get the pushback of, you know, maybe you should stay at home and take care of your kids. 
I've gotten pushback. Oh, Ashley, your husband has a really good job. Why are you out here working so hard? I mean, the guys say that to me all the time. You could be sitting on that couch eating bonbons as a doctor's wife. Yeah, I, I could, but I choose not to. That's not who I am. So, you know, I've had to fight different fights, different battles, but how does the military include more women? You offer educational opportunities. You offer empowerment but you also make sure everybody knows that this is your job. And, you know, in the military, we defend a democracy. We are not of ourselves a democracy. Our job is to go over there and exact violence on the enemy to bend them to the will of what our United States government has asked us to do. So you can't put those democratic ideals necessarily on the military because that's not our job. Our job is to defend the democracy, not to yeah, be the in delineation and of is important to it's understand very and comprehend. Because yeah. if you start bending the military to include and you know have more of a millennial mindset as far as you know, there's certain things we will and won't do. No, that doesn't work. The military yeah. is there to do a job. And uh, so you can't necessarily change it. And that is a big elephant in the room nowadays. It is. It is is part of pretty much every conversation, whether it's really a spoken part of the conversation or not. It is an underlying undercurrent of what's informing the public dialogue out there when it Mm -hmm. comes to what the role of our nation is in the world. Right. And I mean... You cannot turn on the television to watch any kind of cable news conversation about pretty much any topic when it comes to the U.S. role in the world without that mm-hmm. undercurrent being there, right? in and, my and, view. I mean, I don't mean to talk out of two sides of my mouth about, you know, how do we get more women in the military? How do we um, but still maintain our fighting and resident readiness? You know, look at Colonel Martha McSally. She was the first combat aviator into war. Back in 1994, she was Operation Southern Watch in southern Iraq. And she was really our nation's first A-10 pilot in combat, our first female combat fighter pilot. And Mm -hmm. she's serving in the U.S. Senate right now. An incredible woman who really just put her head down and made her way. But before that time, women had not been allowed to be in a combat role in aircraft. So I think we need to allow women to do certain jobs and uh, contribute in a way that they feel they're best able to serve. But also at the same time say, okay, this is your job. This is your choice. There's a certain line you have to toe. Yeah. So let's pivot a little bit to your political aspirations. And Uh (laughs) what brought you around to the idea of pursuing public office in the first place? And do you know what your future plans will be in that regard? Because there are a lot of us out here who are really hoping that you will run for office again. Well, I think what really struck me is I have such a passion for history and current events. And flying over Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, and all over the Middle East, I saw how repeatedly failed policy was affecting not only our men and women in the military, but how we operated and what the overall view of us was in the world. My view over the Middle East and Afghanistan, Syria and Iraq is much different than the view from Washington. Mm -hmm. And, you know, after multiple deployments to the Middle East, I would see where we were successful. And then 
I would go back and see where, due to a policy decision, say when we withdrew from Iraq under the Obama administration and allowed the explosion of ISIS. Flying those missions over northern Iraq and Syria, I looked down and said, wow, we've already shed blood over this country. We've already won this area and we've helped empower the Iraqi nation. And now due to poor decisions and lack of understanding, we have once again given this land up, but we're fighting again. We're spilling more American blood. And this is, it's just failed policy over and over. And it's from those who don't understand the situation, the complexity of it. And so I just got mad. Yeah. Well, this isn't a political podcast, but isn't that what's going to happen in Afghanistan? Well, it depends on what you look at in Afghanistan, how we're going to employ ourselves. Are we going to empower the tribal system? Are we going to understand the complexity? You can't just say, okay, this is Afghanistan and this is how it works. It is since Alexander the Great, the Afghan people have been fighting people that have come in and tried to take over from the outside world. They have the benefit of time, right? We hold the watch but they have time on their hands. So it's just a matter of outlasting. So how do we empower and educate them in order to stop the terrorism that is coming in from the Taliban? You know, the the tribes themselves are not a violent group of people. They have uh, their own tribal system. They have had for centuries, and that's the way they operate. Are we going to understand that and empower it, or are we going to continue to try to have a central government that is dictating to these tribes who are not receptive to it at all? Mm. So really, we've got to understand the complexity of the situation. If we're going to do this, we better do it right. And you can't say, we're going to only allow this many troops to go over there. We've got to give enough to get the situation. And people cannot think this is a decade-long war. Oh, we've been over there since 2000. We've got to get out. Well, guess what? We're still in Japan. We're still in Germany. We're still in South Korea. Mm -hmm. We helped rebuild Japan and Germany after World War II to become economic powerhouses of the world and peaceful societies and countries. And we are still there helping them and empowering them. It takes decades long. You can't say this is going to be this short a war. You got to have the stomach to gut it out. Yeah. Not that the rest of the world recognizes that necessarily or gives any credit where credit is due on that point. God's got a plan of where where he wants me to serve. I have a passion for public service and to get into the political world to try to make a positive change for when men and women in uniform are veterans and for the American society as a whole. I feel extremely passionate about that. Mm-hmm. Well, we're living in an interesting time with our world being in the throes of the coronavirus pandemic, changing on an hour-to-hour basis. And these kind of crises require real leadership. Those who have served in our military are often so uniquely suited to dealing with that intersection between where crises happen and leaders need to chart a path forward. What are your impressions of what's going on right now and how our nation has responded to COVID-19 nationally and even on a state level? What are we doing well and what can we improve? Mm. I think awareness is becoming uh, much more of a forefront. What our leaders need to make sure to do is have complete transparency. One of my criticisms really is people expect the federal government to bail them out and to help them. 
Well, you know what? We are a nation of individuals who have the ability and capability to empower themselves. You can't ask anybody to save you. You need to be able to save yourself. And we need to be able to adapt to the situations as they come down. This curling up in a ball and buying toilet paper is really killing me. Come on. Mm -hmm. If you don't have dried beans and food to eat, you're not going to need the toilet paper. You know, I don't understand this. Uh, you've got to be able to adapt. You have to be able to overcome adversity on your own and don't expect anyone to come and bail you out. Well, it's a resilience and questions um, and and, and uh, you know in some of the social media waters where I operate and Kelly operates in the public relations realm, we have to be. There has to be a that sensitivity level because we're crafting messages. You cannot come across as overtly insensitive right. or and for all kinds of reasons that are relative to public relationship building and right. reputation and all of that. But to your point, there has to be this side of the coin of are we going to be resilient as a nation and just understand <laughs> that th there is a level of coddling, I guess, that mm -hmm. we've got to set aside and and realize that this is not business as usual as right. our, in, in our society at the at this moment in time. There's definitely people who need our help. I understand. Yes, and yes. There, are there has to be that sensitivity. To, absolutely. There, there's some people, there is some, there are some fragile aspects to mental wellness and well-being mm -hmm. there that you do have to have some sensitivity around. But in, in writ large, what you're talking about from a cultural standpoint, you know, we kind of have to pull up our big girls and boys pants here right. and, like, right. you know, and bring you the know, right mentality to them. I look at some generations who are saying, ah, you know, we're still going to get together and have COVID parties and all that stuff. Great. That's awesome. But when they transmit the disease to an older person and when our healthcare system is inundated to the point where hard decisions have to be made, that younger person might get priority over the older person. However, they have been directly responsible for infecting that older person. Now they're going to be directly responsible for taking care away from that older person. Right. And so those, true. those hard decisions are, you know, Yes, we need to isolate and be very responsible and look at the big picture rather than so many times Americans are caught only in what they see. Mm -hmm. They don't see over the hill. You've got to see over the hill and look at the big picture and see outside your own world. And <laughs> I think it's funny, you know, there's a generation who's been social distancing for so long on their phones. Well, that's and true. And now it becomes a crisis when they actually have to. You know, I've always encouraged my kids, get Irony. out face-to-face, -face, <laughs> you know, quit texting. And yeah, I encourage that. But, uh, you know, we really, as a nation, I think it's great. This bill that has gone through to help empower mm -hmm. companies to maintain employees, I just hesitate in some areas of, we need to make sure people remain self-empowered yeah. rather than coming in and giving the impression we're saving everyone from the top when our nation has always been from the bottom up right. in empowerment. Right. When one of the issues right now is how the coronavirus situation is just being politicized mm -hmm. in so many, I think, negative and unproductive ways. If you were in Congress right now, Ashley, how would you envision that you would want to drive and facilitate action and some of that conversation? 
One, uh, I would really encourage people not to contribute to the crazy. Mm -hmm. Focus on the mission that lies ahead. And also, we really had to take a critical look at how do we empower the economy at this point? How do we keep our economy going so that we can help those in need and keep those businesses in working order so as soon as this crisis is over, we can come back strong, stronger than we ever have? So I would encourage the stimulus bill. However, I would also say, you know what? Now is not the time to be left or right, Republican or Democrat. We are Americans in here looking out for the American people. It's not a time to put in this extra bill for, you know, hey, I'm going to give $60 million to the museum in New York. I mm-hmm. want to put something in about abortion. I want to, yeah. you know, add all these different things into this bill. Stop. Stop seeing That's this. That's what makes it a slush fund. That is what <laughs> makes it a slush fund. And that is what the American people cannot stand about yeah. politicians. Right. They start bringing in their own agenda. You know what? Again, we are not Republicans or Democrats. We are Americans making sure that the American economy and the American people are going to be ready to go as soon as this crisis is, is complete. And what about America's crisis preparedness in general? I'd love to get your sense on that. I mean, as most of us know who've dealt directly with crisis response situations, and of course, in the public relations profession, that's what we try to do is try to help companies be prepared in advance, have an action plan. But it's impossible to be 100% prepared for every possible contingency. So that very idea of that is really pie in the sky to begin with. But I mean, you can try to be as reasonably prepared in advance, but only when you're in the thick of things (laughs) mid-crisis can you get a real-world, I think, practical gauge on maybe what was missing in your plan and and how to course correct for that. So I'd love to get a sense of how your military service plus your real-life experience, what it's taught you about those kinds of realities. But, you know, to that first question, America's crisis preparedness in general, mm-hmm. it has to be the best in the world. Right. Did you notice on that question, I was holding my fists up as I was answering about <laughs> being Americans. <laughs> just thought about that. Um, so crisis preparedness, you, you're right. You cannot foresee. It, none of this was foreseen, this mm-hmm. COVID crisis. In my job as a leader in the military, adaptability is the key to everything. In addition is seeing beyond yourself and also forming relationships. My full-time job for the National Guard Bureau is an exercise where it's a response to a natural or man-made disaster by the National Guard and how we integrate with our civilian entities. So I have been dealing with this for the past eight or nine years and how we prepare our military and civilians for disaster. There's always wrinkles that you have to work through in every exercise. But what I've noticed is most important is building those relationships and knowing who you can reach out to and who you can have, who you can trust. Mm -hmm. Just like up in Congress, who can you reach across the aisle to to see beyond their immediate vision to see, you know, into the future and how we make the most positive impact. So as a nation, I think we're flat-footed in that because, again, We don't see over the hill. We just see the hill in front of us and concentrate Mm -hmm. on that. You can't, you always have to think of the secondary and tertiary effects and then all those 
ancillary effects afterwards. There's really no simple solution. There's always wicked problems where you create a solution, however they create more problems in and of themselves. So we've got to stop thinking in the five-year plan. We've got to stop thinking in the 10-year plan. We've got to start thinking more generational and 100 years at a time for how we're going to make a difference for this nation and be ready for whatever crisis comes up. If only we were capable of that from a from a political standpoint, from a societal right. and certainly a media standpoint, my right. word. But, but you yeah. know what? Look at Japan. Look at yeah. China. Yeah. China thinks generationally. Yeah. And if they a 5-year plan is actually tomorrow for them. Yeah. They think 100 years at a minimum at a time. This is yet a blip for them. This crisis will will be gone and they will recover. And they know that in their mind and mentality and their plan. So that's more of an idea we have to adopt here Mm -hmm. in the United States is don't think five, don't think 10, don't think your 20-year mortgage. You got to think 50 years from now, what are my kids going to need 100 years from now? And how can we make this a better and more prepared nation for the crisis that lay ahead? Yeah, such an incredible point. Uh, Well, there are so many scary aspects of what this virus is doing to our country. And the president and many political leaders have characterized this fight as a war. In wartime, you can't go into battle with a, a mindset of fear. You have to bring your A game and face the enemy. One thing that I've noticed about this, and I guess in my lifetime, 9-11 would be the disaster that I would compare this to, right. not in loss of life, but just in just the magnitude of it. But the one thing that I remember about 9-11 is how Americans really came together and banded together. And this time, I don't see as much of that. Maybe it's because of social isolation and sheltering in place. But one thing Mary Beth and I have been working on and really Mary, uh, through the East Tennessee Foundation is trying to get this hashtag movement out there. COVID give where you live Mm -hmm. and to try to just activate people in their own communities to do what they can to either, you know, give a donation, drop a mill off for an elderly person, um, volunteer, check on your neighbors, volunteer for whatever it is, you know, whatever you can do. Mm -hmm. And personally, I'm not seeing that. So not to the, uh, I guess, to the degree that I think it, that should be going on. So what are your impressions of America's I don't know, fight and the importance of Americans to maintain a determined and positive mindset right now. And what can we do to make more of that spirit of being an American bubble up and the, the, the spirit of service and helping each other as fellow Americans? Yeah. You know, it seems in crisis, either it will unify or divide you. 9-11 very much unified this nation. But we had a common enemy that we could identify. It was tangible. It was a, Very there was tangible. there was sort of a human face to the enemy in terms yeah. of there was that tangible aspect of it mm-hmm. when you're when you're dealing. We can with, all hate the same thing. Yeah, the same yeah, way. I guess so. But I mean, there. But, but with this, it's sort of uh, how do you? you it's can't microscopic, a, literally. Yeah, it's hard to put a, a face on you know, the enemy at this point because the enemy is hosted inside of those that we love. Right. So it becomes uh, very divisive in that people draw into their little turtle shells to protect their own family and protect themselves. You know, I mean, let's let's use toilet paper again as an example. You know, we're so blessed to live in East Tennessee in the spring. There's going to be a ton of leaves out there. <laughs> you know? And in the fall, corn cobs. Yeah. <laughs> 
Again, <laughs> the uh, last uh, thing we need to be worried about. I mean, I'm <laughs> trying to look ahead here, people. Now, don't use poison ivy or poison oak. Educate <laughs> yourself. That work out. So you know, not too good. That's really bad. <laughs> but um, you know, one, you've got to have humor in all things. Realize you've got to persevere, and you've got to think outside yourself and outside of your family. Think of those. I think it's funny right now. People are saying, oh, man, thank you so much for our healthcare workers. They're really on the front line. You know what? They're always, always on the front, on the line. front line. There yeah. are so many times when my husband has been in UT. You know, this past Christmas, we went on uh, Christmas Eve after the kids and I went to church and visited Todd because— he was the trauma surgeon on call Christmas Eve to receive those patients who tragically would come to him during the night. And But they're always there. Our health professionals are always there. I mean, a trauma surgeon, you think about what they see on every given night. Every the stuff day. that happens, yeah. you know, whether it's a car accident, whether it's gun violence, mm-hmm. you think about that. And I mean, that's just, that's just another day right. for them. But don't even stop there. Think of the janitors that are there. Exactly. Think of the people who are preparing the food for all the right. patients. Think about the grocery store workers the right grocery now. The grocery store workers. The I mean, entire those ecosystem. People, the, yeah. the grocery store workers are on the front line right yeah, now. They are. They yeah. totally are. So we've got to think, you know, from the top to the bottom and really start thinking from the bottom up right. at this point and really think of how can we make an impact at what we call the tactical level, yeah, because that's what's going to make all the difference to America and Americans at this point. Right. Well, and we're in an economic crunch as mm-hmm. part of this fight as well. It's sort of a whole other front to the war on this. While many Americans would agree that an aid package is absolutely essential, $2 trillion is indeed a and unprecedented. We, Do people that, really understand yeah, how yeah, much that is? That is a gargantuan amount of money. And, I, and of course, we throw away, throw around the word unprecedented ad nauseum at this point. But, you know, it is what it is. Our nation was already something like, what, $23 trillion in debt mm-hmm. already. So, Ashley, I mean, how seriously do you think we have to get as a nation about this debt issue once we get our bearings and the economy normalizes, all fingers crossed? You know, in the wake of this, what are the messages that the U.S. public needs to contemplate far more seriously in that regard? Course correction. Yeah individual course correction. When we enter into a fight, we look at different courses of action, how we can apply the best uh, force to the fight at hand. And then we adapt and course correct as we enter into the fight. This is going to be Americans looking at themselves, looking at what they have been spending money on, what they think is important, and course correct to what truly is important. Do you need, uh, you know, my husband and I have always been extremely fiscally responsible. We've made choices where we're not going to put ourselves in bad positions. And now I can look back and think, well, you know, we didn't get exactly what we wanted, but man, we've got exactly what we want now because we are not burdened by a huge mortgage. We are not burdened by all these ancillary costs. Uh, We've really been intentional in how we've made life choices. 
And I think people really need to analyze their situation and course correct for what is truly important. Is your family important or is a big house important? Is it important to go on these great trips or is it important to truly build meaningful relationships with your God and your family and analyze for what makes not only your family strongest, but what makes our state and our nation the strongest. And none of this is above that self-questioning and that that we all could be doing some analysis as to how are we prioritizing. But I mean, but we have to do it at the household level, but we have to do it as a society as well. And again, you've got to make those decisions at the household level and don't expect someone else to make those corrections for you. Yeah, and make it easy for you. We all have to do it. Right. Oh, I totally agree. I'm totally going through that right now, you know, in my own life and with my career and mm-hmm. with course correction mm-hmm. and just look, thinking about how I live and what I need and what I don't need. And so anyway, we're, we're way off topic, but, <laughs> but we, have, we have been the whole time. But we need to make up the topic, right? Because it's our podcast. <laughs> but my kids were saying last night, oh, mom, I don't want a ham sandwich. And I'm, you know what? You're lucky you have that ham yeah. sandwich. And there's yeah. going to be a time coming up here where we're going to be having dried beans. Yeah, and so yeah, enjoy yeah. it right now. Yeah. yeah, and we say in our house, and I think a lot of people say in their house, you get what you get and you don't pitch a fit. <laughs> the same Burger King right here. You get what mama serves you. And if you don't eat it, you don't eat. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Dude, that's so sad. <laughs> so... Wrapping up here soon, you know, our podcast focuses in a large part on marketing, PR, and communications issues. And in Mary Best and Mind line of work, we try to motivate people to action with focusing on the right messages and messages that inspire trust in the process. And what are the messages we need to promote in our country that you will think will drive trust in our elected leaders? Faith, family, and service. Always put that. Very simple message. But Coming I mean, back to the first thing you said. Yeah, right. It is. Um, you really have to make that your central message. Don't look for divisions in how you disagree with people. Look for the, the issues that can unify us. When I fly, I don't care if the guy next to me is on the left or the right. We've got a mission to do. Let's come together and get it done. Look for ways to unify us. Don't think of who's right. You always look for what is right, and that's what should guide you. You shouldn't worry about yourself being the person that's bringing the right message or I'm always going to be on the right side. You hope and pray you're going to be on the correct side, but you are the person who's helping to unify and look for what's right, not who's right at this point. And those politicians who do that are going to rise above And they're Mm -hmm. going to be the ones that we recognize as saying they didn't stand for their side. They stood for America. Amen, sister. Indeed. Indeed. At least we pray that that they will do that, right? Right. right. Exactly. Do you have any deployments coming up? Oh, actually, we're going to be bidding on deployments coming up, and I'm trying to figure out when I will. It will probably be next spring. So generally, we go every 12 to 18 months. So, But, you know, my last deployment, I was able to finish up my master's thesis. So I try to make a uh, 
good use of the time when I'm away from the and family. How, how long is the duration usually for a deployment for you? Because we go so often, usually it's about 45. Sometimes we can go up to 90 days. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. we stay there for a much shorter amount of time, which is a such a blessing because there's a lot of my brethren in uniform who go six months to a year. Yeah, I mean, it's to that, 18 months. That's a huge chunk out of it's your life. It's a huge that's, hit. Yeah. yeah. And so family, very hard. Luckily, they don't have to go as often. We go more often for shorter durations. Yeah. yeah. Well, thanks so much, Ashley. You're such an inspiration to not just, not only women, but people everywhere. And we appreciate you joining us today. And I just love you. And thank you guys uh, for being a platform for spreading positivity and a message of empowerment. Well, you're just amazing. And you're the exact kind of guest we want to have more of. So Mm. in fact, we're going to have to have you back because we, because we really want (laughs) to continue to hear from you and just getting, getting your perspectives as things are evolving for sure. And we're so grateful for your service and please thank your husband, Todd, for his service too. And to our listeners, please follow us at Twitter handle Fletcher PR. You can also also follow me at Twitter handle at KD Fletcher and Mary Beth at Mary Beth West. We will respond to your questions and comments. So please do post them using the hashtag misinterpreted and that's hashtag MS interpreted. And for visibility sake, don't forget to capitalize the PR. Don't miss our Twitter chats on the last Wednesday of each month using the same misinterpreted hashtag. We love having direct dialogue with our growing base of followers and everyone thanks for being here until next time. Thanks for joining us on Misinterpreted, Public Relations Demystified. You can keep up with the latest on the podcast at FletcherMarketingPR.com and on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll see you next time 